Uh, <clears throat> okay. Well, it's, as I was saying to somebody, it's not real easy to share after a message like that. Uh, but it, it does kind of give me the experience of this verse. And that is, indeed, we have had the response of death in ourselves. That we should not base our confidence on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Hallelujah. Yeah, you know, this is a word that, let me just say this, and I will, I'd like to introduce myself. The word that Brother Ron shared this morning, uh, I, I was, I think all of us were very deeply touched. And uh, <clears throat> I would say this, this word, or this kind of word, the, the flavor of this word, the essence of this word, is the, uh, this is the Lord's recovery that I touched when I, when I contacted the Lord's recovery in 1970. And uh, I certainly had no thought when I came into the Lord's recovery that I was coming to do any kind of work. It's the furthest thing from my mind. Just <laughs> couldn't have imagined uh, even that that was anything on the, on the radar screen, but I did uh, realize that the Lord had a desire in his heart and uh, he had a ministry. I, I didn't have the terms, but, uh, but the, the flavor and the atmosphere and the taste is exactly what we shared this morning. So I just really appreciate this. I, I need to hear these words. I think we all need to hear these words over and over again. This is really the essence of what the Lord's recovery is. Amen. A lot of us are involved in a lot of kinds of work. Uh, I am in, have been actively involved in working on the campus for the last, well, so many years. But anyway, more, more definitely since I personally went down the Austin apprenticeship, but even years before that. But still having, you know, and all this stuff, that's not the essence of what we're all about. What we're about is we're about the flavor of Christ. We're about Christ rotting himself into us and constituting us and uh, uh, grinding us and blending us into a meal offering that satisfies God and man. So anyway, this, I, I just thank, thank the Lord for, for what Ron shared. And uh, I don't have the, uh, I don't think I can share a word like that. I'm not going to try. <laughs> but I will I'd like to share some of my experiences and just to underline some of the things the brothers shared last night. First of all, let me go back to the introduction. Okay, my name is Collie Joseph. Sounds like it should be the other way around. But as I tell people, I was born upside down. And uh, actually, Collie is my middle name. My first name's David. Good Jewish, David Joseph. My grandfather was a Jew. Actually, my grandfather was saved before I was saved. I'm from a family of God, of, of people that don't know God. So we were, I was raised an atheist, among atheists. But uh, interestingly enough, very shortly before I was born again, my Jewish grandfather, who was a non-practicing Jew, was saved. And it was right before he died. He was 84. He was living in a very small town in South Louisiana on the Mississippi River. Uh, he was a Jewish immigrant, French Jewish immigrant, who came there and... Uh, like a lot of Jews, he did well in his little sphere. Became the mayor of the little town, president of the bank, and all the things that, you know, happens with Jews. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, but, and he was a fine man. But anyway, it's very interesting. He was saved right before I was saved. And this was a big stir in our family. Big stir in our family. We didn't, couldn't figure out what's the deal. 
he was calling on Jesus. He didn't say, oh Lord Jesus, but he said, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, have mercy on me. And he was, it made us all so nervous, we even didn't like to walk in the room. Because I, when I was a kid, I had memorized, my father uh, had, uh, I don't, my father passed away, and I don't know what his status was before he passed away, but he had made me memorize the Lord's Prayer, like a lot of people did. In the 50s, you know, you went to church, and we went to the one that was closest to our house, which is an Episcopal church. Well, you didn't hear anything. I asked my mother one time, I said, is the man with the robes, is that God? And, uh, and she said, no, that's, he's not God. But, uh, and I remember asking my mother one time, I said, why do they, when I found out about, you know, Easter and stuff like this, I said, Mama, why do they call the day they killed Jesus Good Friday? It seems, sounds like that, that's not a good day. And she said, yeah, I don't understand that either. <laughs> And uh, that's, that's, what, that's our spiritual background. <laughs> but anyway, when my grandfather was saved, really, the, we were all bothered, a little bit bothered, because we weren't sure that somebody wasn't trying to get his money. This is the kind of people we were. But it was real, a real salvation. Then I was saved not too long after that, and then before my grandfather passed away, we prayed some together. It was real sweet. So I'm thankful for that. Anyway, I was raised... Uh, down in South Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In those days, very predominantly Catholic. Of course, Kathy uh, Walker here is from New Orleans. We went to college together. But uh, a little bit different today, but mainly in those days, Catholic. Most of my friends were Catholic. I, I never heard the gospel. Never heard the gospel. I remember the first time I heard the gospel. Actually, it was when I was a sophomore at LSU. Uh, and a, a guy, a student. A student shared the gospel with me in the parking lot of an academic building after a, some kind of seminar or something we went to, and, and I rejected it summarily. But I'll never forget. And I can, and I tell young people this. Don't think it's a small thing for you to be in a class and have a friend and to speak to them. I still remember where I was standing in that parking lot. I remember the whole thing, even though probably to his mind, you know, he thought it was just worth it because I rejected him right out. But the gospel's powerful. And anyway, uh, I was by this time a pretty outspoken atheist, uh, somewhat raised agnostic, and had a kind of a child's faith in God in a kind of a you know simplistic way until my brother, oh, my oldest brother, who went to school at one of the Ivy League schools, came back. And one time I was mentioning God, and he said... You don't believe in God, do you? And that was the end of whatever was left in me, of whatever little childlike faith I had. Uh, anyway, I, I was drifted into being pretty much an, an atheist, and by the time I was in college, pretty outspoken. But I had some friends at LSU who prayed for me. And uh, I, again, I tell the college students, uh, encourage them so much, pray for your friends. Pray for your friends. Speak to your friends. I wouldn't have listened to a, a campus worker. I just, I, wasn't, I just was too kind of stubborn and rebellious and ornery. But my friends, I like my friends. And thank the Lord my friends prayed for me. Anyway, there's a lot of details in all of our lives about how the Lord worked to bring us to salvation. But uh, with me, it was... It was not that I had come to uh, 
a lot of failure. Actually, I was doing very well in my pursuit and, and academically as well as the things that I was interested in in college. But it was really the emptiness of gaining what I was tr trying to get. And, 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 you know, Brother Lee would tell the story. You remember the story of the girl who was presented at the ball in, in, in London and she's like a debutante and she's got the new gown and they present her and then at the end of it she comes back to her room and she cries. She says, you know, is this all there is? So I think with me, my experience was more like that. Uh, I had a, even though my family was atheists, they were good, good folks, solid folks, had a nice community of people to be raised in. But uh, I believe because of the prayers of my friends, to tell you the truth, based on John chapter 16 and based on Luke chapter 15, I believe based on the prayers of my friends, the Holy Spirit began to sweep me and to sweep inside of me and to enlighten me. And uh, the Holy Spirit began to convict me of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. And uh, anyway, in the Lord's timing, things were, were right. And uh, so at the end of my junior year at LSU, uh, I met Christ. And, and it was led to the Lord by a, a student, a fellow student. We were studying for an examination together. It was actually it's a kind of an interesting story. I'm just to give you a little brief addition. But anyway, we were studying together, and uh, it was we were studying for going to study all night for a constitutional law. It, we were, it was undergraduate, but it was a constitutional law course, and we were going to study all night, and we were going to take the test at eight in the morning. And there were four of us studying, and I was an atheist, and this other guy was an atheist, and there were two Christians. We had the class together, and you know uh, how it is in college. You know, you just studying, and then you're drinking coffee, and you're talking. And uh, so sometimes I, I look back on it many times to try and recollect exactly what happened in my mind because I'm still curious about everything. But it was early in the morning, one, two maybe in the morning, I don't know. But we were just talking and we were into this whole thing about, you know, the, the Constitution and government and laws and justice and mercy and all this kind of stuff. We were pretty serious students. We were talking about all this stuff. Anyway, the Christian guy... He, I just have to say, I think it was the Lord, he just began to share about Christ. Somehow, I don't know how he got into it, but it was about Christ. And, and eventually, uh, what, what came out was, because I was all perplexed about everything, you know, about justice and mercy. I, I, was, I didn't see how they could ever be justice and mercy together. They, they were irreconcilable. If you have a just society, then there's no mercy. If you have a merciful society, then it's just a mess. And so I just, I was, these are the kind of things I thought about all the time. I mean, you know, I was in that generation. And uh, we were always thinking about this kind of stuff, and it was bothering me. But anyway, that night, somehow, he just, and I, it wasn't that he contrived it. I really think it was the Lord just somehow opened up this. And he began to share with me. And how it was, I don't know. He was a bright, bright young man. And he began somehow to, to share with me that justice and mercy come together in Christ. And uh, I don't know, that night it made sense. That night it clicked. That night the lights turned on. And I just listened. He was just talking. I was just listening. I was sitting in this chair in this house, not too far from LSU campus. That my grandparents owned, but they, they weren't living there and I was living there. And I just was sitting there. It was kind of an unconventional salvation because as he was talking, I was sitting 
And I was listening. And I didn't really say anything. And he didn't ask me to say anything. He didn't ask me to pray. But I was just believing what he said. It just began to, I began to realize this is right. Christ, Jesus Christ, is the, he is the solution to mercy and justice. They come together in him. And it just is like my inner being was just being filled with light and flooded with light. But I was quiet. I don't know what he thought about what I was thinking, but it's a very strange evening because about three or four that morning, the phone rings. And it's his mother. And he's telling him that his father is dying of a massive coronary heart attack. He was just in his 50s. The father was young. And so this guy, who's a Christian, and his friend, who was there too, basically he was just listening too, they're the two Christian guys, and they knew each other, and so they had to go to the hospital. And his father did die that night. And uh, this guy who preached the gospel to me is the brother of a brother, in the, uh, one of the co-workers in uh, full-time serving brothers in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The brother is Fred Koch. It was his younger brother that shared with me. Johnny. Johnny was in the Lord's recovery for a while, but kind of left. He's not negative, but he's just kind of fallen away. But anyway, so these two Christian guys... They get the phone call, and uh, I remember, you know, it was a tragic, sudden thing, but I was so full of peace, and so full of inward, I don't know, I just had this peace, and I wasn't panicked, and I watched him, I was watching him, how is, in the back of my mind, how is he going to deal with this, and I noticed he was at peace, which was, I had been through some very traumatic death situations in my own family, as an unbeliever, and I'd seen death from the side of an unbeliever in a, in a very tragic and sudden fashion. So I, I had tasted the pangs of death as an unbeliever. But I watched him. And uh, this was, again, a further underlining of the testimony of what was real. And I just was watching him. And I remember he called up a few of his Christian buddies, and he said something like, you know, would you pray for my dad? He's, he's in the hospital. He doesn't look good. So he left. He and the Christian guy, they left three, maybe 3.30 in the morning to go to the hospital. The father died subsequently, just that morning, later that morning. That left me in this room with this other guy who had heard everything I'd heard. He was an unbeliever, just like me. We were both unbelievers. I believe to this day he's still an unbeliever. I ran into him in the airport in New Orleans one time. He, would, he went into politics. He became a state senator. He ran for the U.S. Senate. He got beat. But he's a kind of a wheeler and a dealer in Baton Rouge and in Louisiana. I ran into him in the airport about four or five years ago. I've always wanted to see this guy because I haven't seen him since that night and it was like when I ran into him, he didn't want to talk to me. He was afraid that I was going to ask him something about, hey, what do you remember about that night? <laughs> because he just kind of, he had a wife and children and he just kind of backed away and, and I, I just kind of said, hi, how you doing? His name was Chuck. But anyway, after the two Christian guys leave, I'm in this room with this guy, Chuck, who's an unbeliever, and I think to this day is, and heard everything I heard. He heard everything I heard, but after they leave, he looked at me, he said, Collie, what's, what's all this about? What do you make of this? All this talk about God and Jesus, and then the phone rings, and this guy's, Johnny's dad's dying. What's, what's going on here? And I remember 
I said, I, I turned to Chuck. I was just sitting. It's the first time I said anything. The whole time I was just quiet like the Sphinx. Just sitting there. But within, just at peace and rest, and I just felt a kind of a liberation of joy I had probably never felt in my life because I had kind of stumbled on the answer to life. And I looked at this guy, Chuck, and I said, Chuck, I can't believe it, but I've become a Christian. He said, what? <laughs> when did you become a Christian? I said, just, just now. <laughs> and then I just began to share with Chuck until the sun came up, which was probably two or three more hours. I began to share with Chuck what was my realization about what had happened that night and about the things I'd heard about Christ. I don't know what I shared. I, I, wish, I, I wish I could remember what I shared. <laughs> because I didn't know anything. I didn't even know a verse in the Bible. But something came out of me. And I shared with Chuck, and I remember when the sun came up, he was going to go to take that test. I said, I can't take this test, Chuck. I'm not ready. <laughs> I'm going to ask the professor... If I can take it with the summer school class, and I'm going to tell him that we were studying, and my friend, you know, Johnny's father died, and that we just got off on other things. See what he says. Anyway, it worked out for me, but he left, and I, as I was going, we've been up all night studying, or supposedly studying, and uh, as I was, I didn't know the disposition of what happened with Johnny's dad. I did find out later when he came over to my house, but I remember I got in my bed because I was tired. And as I was lying in the bed, about to go to sleep, for the first time since I'd really kind of, this light had gone off of me and I'd realized that what I was looking for was Jesus Christ, I was lying in the bed and a little kind of a, if you've ever seen these, uh, you know, Peanuts commercials or, or, or uh, cartoons, uh, a little cloud comes over a pig pen. <laughs> and a little cloud came over me. And uh, <laughs> I had a realization there's some feeling of anxiety now that I have. What is it? And I tried to identify it. I was saying, why? why? Why am I anxious? And then it came to me. As I was about to go to bed that morning, I was anxious. I realized what I'm anxious about is this. When I wake up, will I still believe? And I was afraid I wouldn't. I was afraid when I wake up, it was just something, whatever, too much coffee or something. <laughs> and anyway, too much coffee. But anyway, so um, I, I was tired. I had to go to sleep. So I went to sleep. I remember when I woke up, I think I woke up around noon or so, and I woke up as this brother Johnny, who had, his father had died, and he'd been in the hospital. He was coming to tell me, calling my father died, and I don't know, he was just coming to tell me or something. I heard them knocking on my door, and I woke up. But I remember the first thing I thought is, do I still believe? This just came into me. Do I still believe? And then I just kind of checked with my inner being, and I said, yes, I do. I still believe. I still believe. And I was so happy that I still believed. Anyway, that was the summer, actually, of the beginning of my senior year. Kathy, this Kathy Rockwood, and, and Ken, her husband, uh, sorry, Kathy Walker, she used to be Kathy Rockwood, she was a student, and she had just gotten saved too. Totally independent of me. It's very interesting. We had contact with one another that summer. 
and uh, about a kind of a thing we were both involved in in school at LSU, and then we discovered that each of us had been saved. That was the beginning of my Christian life. I contacted the church not long after that. The Lord was really good and very kind and very gracious to me because I met the Lord through the brother of a brother who was in the Lord's recovery. I believe this is why his gospel was quite good. It was high. He spoke things at night as like Christ is the reality. He is all these kind of high utterances. And I think that's what helped me have some deeper realization of things because his speaking was a little uplifted. He had been in meetings with the church in Houston, although he wasn't really in the church. But anyway, (laughs) interesting experience. So uh, we... uh, I was just, you know, I just had a great summer. I was just loving the Lord, and it was just wonderful. And I didn't know anything about the church. Nobody ever brought that up to me. But I was, I went to a 1970, fall of 1970. I was starting to like have more fellowship with Christians and things like this. And uh, I remember we went to a football game one night, LSU. And as I was coming back from the game, I was walking through one of the academic buildings on the campus. And it was one of these buildings where you push the glass door open. And there was a glass door. And on the inside of the door, there was a little flyer that had been posted. And the flyer said, still hungry, question mark. And I, I looked at that and I thought to myself, this is about God. And so sure enough, I pushed the door open. And I looked on the back side of the card. And then it said... That was Saturday night, and it said, Sunday, whatever, there'll be a meeting to fellowship Christ, and it gave an address, and the address was my house. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I I looked at that, and I realized, I mean, you know, that's just where we were. I said, Johnny did that, my friend Johnny. He called a meeting at my house of some kind. You know, you know, when you're in college, you're not bummed out about stuff like that. It's okay, whatever. Sure enough, the next morning, some brothers from the church in Houston and sisters came over, including Brother Benson, Brother Ray Graver, and several others. And they were all, you know, in their upper 20s, and I was in my early 20s. And Johnny, had, my friend, had invited some people, other people from LSU. Anyway, anyway that meeting uh, was very important. Because at that meeting, I really touched my spirit. You know, I began to call on the Lord's name. That was an introduction to me, not just into the truth of Christ, that I was really enjoying the fact that he was real, but now I had touched my spirit. Anyway, subsequently, a lot of things happened, and Kathy and some of her friends and other people at LSU, students, uh, eventually, that was my senior year, I think it was Kathy's junior year, uh, eventually by the end of that year, which is June of 71, we had probably... 15, 16 people meeting together in Baton Rouge, all students, and 14 of us moved over to Houston. Just left, moved. And what we moved to Houston to was what Brother Ron shared about. We had touched Christ. We had touched, we had touched this aroma and this flavor and this reality of this person, Jesus Christ. We had no thought of work. No thought of work. Zero. We just were going there basically to die and to be a part of this corporate blended loaf that God was creating and that was the church. I mean, we had very little articulation but we had touched something that was so real and so profound. And uh, 
So that was the beginning of my church life. Well, it began really in Baton Rouge. We, we'd meet that spring, and then we were in Houston. In those days, things were fast-moving. We were trained for a year and then sent out in migration after one year. I'd only been baptized about six months. And uh, we had a migration to New Orleans. So, you know, praise the Lord, back to Louisiana. <laughs> I'd never lived in New Orleans. I'd always been in Baton Rouge. That was, even to me, from Baton Rouge, New Orleans was kind of a strange country. But... <laughs> Anyway, we went there. We had the church life in New Orleans. It was actually pretty good. We gained some people. But at a certain point in time, there was a kind of a feeling among some of the smaller churches to consolidate. And this happened with Memphis. It happened with Fort Worth, I think, New Orleans. Some places on the East Coast? I don't know. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. And I was happy because I, was, I, I, and I had a definite feeling. You know, those of us in New Orleans were asked to consider... Mainly, we were going to consider Houston, Dallas, or Austin. And it's really fun. The Lord was so clear to me. Dallas, Dallas. I need to go to Dallas. Even though in some senses, I want to go to Austin because of the college work, but it seemed the Lord was speaking to me, Dallas, and my wife and I, we went there. I was married by this time. Actually, the girl I married, I met her at LSU. We, were, we met each other as unbelievers. She was an unbeliever. I was an unbeliever. We met when we were freshmen the first week of school at LSU. And uh, then in that junior year when I got saved, she actually got saved before me. But she got, had a kind of a weak salvation. It was through Campus Crusade, but it was genuine. It was genuine. <laughs> no, no, no. I think she would admit that. Uh, uh, because, you know, their, their gospel was kind of, you know, not that much. But they, they used to go to sorority houses and stuff like this, and she was into that. And, and, but it got her saved. And uh, then she began to talk to me a little bit, too, about the Lord, because I wouldn't listen to her. Anything she said about the Lord, because I thought the Baptists were working on it, is what I said. I said, you come under the influence of the Baptist. That was a, kind of a derogatory term. Uh, but anyway, we, she came in the Lord's recovery with me. And then after a year in church in Houston, we were single there. I was living in a brother's house. She lived in a sister's house. We got married. We moved to New Orleans. And we went back up to Dallas. So we were in Dallas for three years, 74 to 77. 76 and 77, Brother Lee was more and more burdened about the young people and that uh, the young people would have an opportunity to bear burden, to labor, to serve. Uh, and... Uh, you know, in those days, in the early days, because some of you that have been around a long time know exactly what I'm talking about, in the early days in the Lord's recovery, we had no thought of full-time. I mean, there were a few full-timers, but we were a citizen army. That was the concept among us. We were like the Jews. We go back to the land. We labor on the land. If there's something to do, we all do it together. We fight together, but we're working. We're doing this. We're, you know house painters or school teachers or whatever very simple things our thoughts were in those days uh, but the first kind of uh, stirrings about some to serve full time I remember hearing a little bit about this in 76 and then again in 77 and uh, I didn't quite it didn't quite fit in my mind with the citizen army that I had my thought about the Lord's recovery but I did know that in Taiwan they had full timers and I knew well Taiwan they've been around longer than us and I couldn't quite understand, what do these full-timers do? But uh, anyway, so we, we uh, brotherly asked a few brothers, I think out here. And then the brothers in our area, we considered that maybe some of us should try this. 
1977, uh, which was a bit of a tumultuous time, uh, the brothers asked me if I would consider to serve to go to Oklahoma. And uh, they had just been in migration October of 76. From a number of different churches, they came to Oklahoma City. And the reason they came there is because Brother Jerry Romer, who's with Living Stream now, he was there. He was an evangelist there. And uh, there were some other kind of preachers and things like that that were there. And uh, they had read the ministry, and we there was a migration up there to, to start the church. I didn't go. I had no burden for Oklahoma. But in 77, when they asked me to consider, maybe I would serve and go up there and maybe try and do something on the campus. I remember Benson said, now, Brother Lee uh, said this. Don't consider this permanent. We're going to try it. We're going to try it. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work. Well, actually, I was glad to hear that. Because I didn't really want to consider it permanent either. I didn't know how it was going to work out. <laughs> and... Uh, but anyway, I did feel the Lord was calling. I, I, it wasn't just that the brothers asked me. I can say before the Lord, I had a, some feeling. Actually, to tell you the truth, saints, the night I was saved, the very night I was saved, or maybe it was the next night, because we got together, some of us, that next night after I was saved, I had a feeling right away, I need to go tell people about Christ. I mean, what am I doing? You know, I was into all this politics. That's kind of my background, things that interested me with politics. But I thought, you know, what is this? Nothing. I need to go out and tell people about Christ. So I think from the very beginning, I had some feeling and some desire that this was what I needed to do with my life, to share Christ with people, to tell people about this reality. This is what's real. All the other stuff's not real. And uh, so there was definitely a response to me to give this a try. So we went up there, my wife and I did. We moved in this big old fraternity house that we had bought, the church had bought. It was a mess. Now it's actually pretty nice if you've ever been there. But he was a wreck then. Eric used to live there. When Eric lived there, his, we had a fire. His mother came for his graduation. The house caught on fire. I never forgot. <laughs> we all had to rush out in our bathrobes, and we were counting heads, and we thought, where's Eric's mother? She's down in the basement. But anyway, we got her out. And uh, anyway, so here we were, and we didn't know how to serve. My goodness. We didn't know what to do. Just go yell at people. <laughs> and we tried some of that. <laughs> That didn't work. And uh, all kind of stuff. And here I was. I was it, it, when you look back on it, it's incredible. I was alone. I was by, by myself serving. No team. Just me. I mean, how in the world I survived, I do not know. Uh, what I would do is I'd bring a stack of books in the morning usually. I'd go to the library at OU. And I had a stack. I had my Bible. And I had some Mashpani books, some ministry books some witnessly books, and some church history. And I would just spend the morning reading. And then the afternoon, I didn't know what to do, so I, know, I knew I needed to do something. I had to have a schedule, so I would just bring the stack of books, go to the OU library, read my Bible in a systematic way, read Brother Lee's life studies at that time mainly, and watch my new books. That was my morning. And that was good. And then the afternoon, I would try to preach the gospel. It didn't really work that well. And many times I thought about quitting. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I thought about quitting. But I never got to peace. I never got to peace. And gradually the Lord just would open up other things for me to do. And, and um, Anyway, so the reason I'm out here now is because uh, the brothers asked me to come and 
to spend some time here because Brother Dan Toll is kind of on a sabbatical for health reasons. Probably some of you know that. Uh, to get his health back. And so they asked me to come be willing maybe to help some with the DCP. Why me? I don't know. But anyway, uh, Dick Taylor said DCP is dispensing Christ purposely. <laughs> so I'm here for uh, my wife and I have rented a house in Fullerton and we'll, at this point we're based upon what the brothers asked me to do to be here for a year and a half and we'll see what, what happens after that but anyway I would like to just say in a few remaining minutes I have left uh, just ask, that's who I am I have three kids uh, all of them are saved there's a different little relationship with the church not all so burning but anyway they're wonderful children <laughs> and uh, and they're just the ones that I need. <laughs> uh, the brothers shared last night, it's very difficult for me to add or anything or comment on anything Ron shared other than the fact that this is the spirit and the flavor of the Lord's recovery that I touched. And I thank the Lord that we're always brought back to this. This is what we're all about. I know many of us are involved in a lot of work and I, do, I, love, I love working on the campus. I do, I just love it. You know, I, probably this would got me in trouble. I saw Dan Toll up at Whistler, and uh, after we made that, you know, quarantine letter and all this, and I was kind of walking through that little beautiful town there, and Dan was just sitting there drinking something, and I said, talk to him. I just told him, Dan, how much I appreciate what you brothers are doing. I, I was involved in this kind of work in 84, 85. I moved actually to California for a year when we finished up the Godmen. I started getting involved in this in 77. We had the mind benders. And then I was working out of Oklahoma. Then Dan and I both, Dan Toll and I both moved to Atlanta for a while. We finished up that case there with a settlement. Then we, I went back to Oklahoma. He came back to Fulton. Then in 84, yeah, 84, Brother Lee asked me, uh, he came to Oklahoma and he asked me if I would consider to move to California to help finish up the Godmen. Well, it's not easy to say no to Brother Lee. So I said, okay, <laughs> amen. <laughs> anyway, that was a good year, and praise the Lord, we finished that case. But anyway, maybe that's how my name came up. I don't know. Probably just God knew that I needed this. But uh, I saw Dan Toll, and I said, Dan, by the way, I want to tell you I appreciate your labor. And I do. The brothers have done such a great job. I mean, this is a setback, this Texas Supreme Court, but I don't know. But anyway, they have done a tremendous job. I mean, a tremendous job. I admire their labor and their sacrifice to the uttermost. So I said, Dan, I just, and I really meant it. I really meant I appreciate what you brothers have done. And I just said, you know, I, uh, you know I'm pretty involved at OU, and uh, probably I was justifying myself or something, but I said, you know, I don't know. I just been enjoying working on the campus. Anyway, the Lord heard that probably and <laughs> decided he was going to do something different. <laughs> anyway, praise the Lord. Uh, Dick and I, Taylor and I are over in Memphis. We go there usually twice, uh, once a year in February. <clears throat> and we just shared, you know, the things that we heard in the uh, Thanksgiving Day conference, again with the saints there. But I was, would just like to underscore a couple of things, uh, and then we're going to need to stop here at 12, right? Is that timing? Oh, okay. Well, it gives some time to share. But anyway, 
uh, underscore a few things, and just to underscore what the brothers shared too, and that is, uh, it's a matter of prayer, it's a matter of the truth, and a matter of the personal shepherding. And uh, these are so critical to us. Our real work and our first work, of course, is the way we live. Uh, And I, you know, in Paul and Ephesians, when he comes to chapter 4, he says, and I think this, actually, this this conference we're going to have is going to be all about this, and that is our worthy walk. Paul says, I beg, I, I implore you or beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. Saints, uh, I believe I am freshly touched and impressed and burdened with this matter, and that is a worthy walk. And that is our daily living. And all of us in these days, many of us in these days, I hear it here and there and everywhere, we just are touched again. What about our daily living? What about our daily living? In Oklahoma City recently, we've, we've decided we're going to have a training. Okay, now, when I talk to the elders about this, oh, we just, ain't, we, we're us. We agree, we not agree, but we uh, agonized over the word training. Ay, 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 can we have a training? Who can train anybody? But eventually we became peaceful for one reason, for two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, the training that we're having there is a training to help the saints have a daily life. And the training in this regard helping the saints have a daily life, is a training to help us to have scheduled times of Bible reading and scheduled times of ministry reading and scheduled times of prayer and a little bit toward the gospel every day. So as we agonized over the use of the word, we thought, what can we call this thing? Training, we're not going to be training anybody. I mean, we're not going to even have hardly meetings. Maybe once every couple of months we'll get everybody together and kind of fellowship about it, but... The training is in this sense. We knew and we had a feeling that we all need to have a, a, a daily life. You know, Ron was in Second Corinthians. In Second Corinthians, Paul said, we don't lose heart, but though our outer man is being uh, consumed, our inner man is being renewed day by day. So the Christian life, the church life, must be a day-by-day life. We have a song in the hymn book, right? We have an inner life. That's for our daily life. That's for the meaning life. Just Christ. I've always appreciated this hymn. Because what about our daily walk? What about, you know, the two kinds of walk in, 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 in Galatians? One is the common walk. That's, I believe, used in verse 16. And the other is the military walk. But the military walk comes after the common walk. What a, the, in other words, our ability to walk in rank and to serve in rank and to walk in lockstep is based upon the fact that we have a daily life. What about our daily life? So we knew that the saints and the serving ones, I told the serving ones, we have 17 serving full-time in Oklahoma City, I told the serving ones before I left to come out here, I said, if we as serving ones can't do this training, which is really simple, one chapter of the Old Testament a day, one chapter of the New Testament a day, I uh, one life study, you have three days to read a life study, then three days to read a second. The two life studies a week. So it's just a few pages of a life study a day. Morning revival, which is what the church is in the Holy Word. An afternoon time of prayer, where we stop in the afternoon and 
pray just for five minutes. Should be easy, right? And to either give out a gospel track or a BFA card or at least put one out. If you don't have the guts to give it out, just put it out. <laughs> and then just run away. <laughs> but, you know, the, our, uh, the, our point was we need to... We need, all of us need a schedule. We need a daily life. Look, people go to gyms, right? You know, you, you, you buy the gym and you put it in your garage and it never gets used. But you go to, you, you join the gym, you do it with other people and you do it better. Why? Because we need one another. We tend to do things better when we do them with others. So the church is going to do this now. We're going to do it together. We're going to read a chapter of the Old Testament every day. We're going to read a chapter of the New Testament every day. We're going to read our uh, One Life Study Monday through Wednesday. And then we're going to read our Second Life Study Thursday through Saturday. We're going to all practice stopping to have five minutes of prayer in the afternoon. And we're going to give out or put out or something, uh, hand out a gospel track or a BFA card. And the other thing is we have once a week you have to have a little prayer partner. Then there are other things just related to meetings, but it's very simple. Very simple, but it's so simple, but not that simple. To do that, if the, what if the whole church did that? What if we all would read one chapter of the old and one chapter of the new and a few pages of the ministry every day and stop in the afternoon to pray? My goodness, this would have a strong impact. So th- in this sense, I told the elders and I told the church, I do feel comfortable to call it a training. Because it is a training. It's a daily life training. And it's also a training because you're trained when you read God's Word and you're trained when you read the ministry. Just reading the ministry, my word, it trains us. So many stories, so many whatever, the wisdom of brotherhood, that just trains you. So yes, it's a training. I'm comfortable now with the Word for our, our church to use. Anyway, saints... These three things that the brothers mentioned, I would just would underscore them, underline them, and that is, of course, morning watch is a big part of it, and we need, we need, as serving ones, I, many of you are serving on campus, some of you are serving with Living Stream or DCP, or I don't even know, know all the services out here. But anyway, it's all precious, because we serve the living God. And when our, in the service office in Oklahoma City, we have a big... Frame verse. We, we have a brother that does, uh, if you've ever been in our hall, you'll see all these frame verses and quotes because we have a brother that does this for a living. And then we just frame them. He paints them all and does them on his graphic means. So we have a big frame in the service hall that says, it is man's glory to serve God. Right? Uh, Watch my knee. Yeah. I hope this is our attitude. Wow, what a privilege that we can serve God. Wouldn't it be kind of fun to go and serve in the White House? It would be. I mean, there you're in the, the you know, center of the free world and, 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 and they're serving the president. That would be exciting, you know? I mean, if I had that chance today, I'd have to really go to the Lord. <laughs> but I, he wouldn't let me, I'm sure. But anyway, it'd be very tempting. But we serve God. We serve the living God. How precious is that service? What an honor, what a privilege that we could serve him. I mean, you know, we should pay. We should pay to serve him. But anyway, so we serve him. However we serve. But saints, another quote we have in our elders' room is that quote which probably most of you are familiar with. The watchman, he says, our prayer is much more valuable than our work. We accomplish much more in our prayer. Oh, this is so true. 
we need to be people of prayer. And, and not, and we tell the saints, don't just pray for yourself. Don't just pray for your own problems. Let me tell you, sometimes the more we pray for ourselves, the more we pray for our own problems, the more you get into a kind of a spiral downward. It, it really, it can spiral you right down. Just praying for your, oh, this, my children. Oh, pretty soon you're in a pity party. Pray for others. Pray for others. Pray for the Lord's interest. Pray for His interest. Pray for His children. This kind of prayer really builds you up. Builds up your most holy faith. And this is our first work, as far as work is concerned, to pray. And, you know, I like the fact that Paul, a number of times in his epistles, three, four, maybe five times, he says this, making mention of you in my prayers. I grab hold of that verse. Because sometimes I don't know what to pray for people. But I just can mention them. Paul said making mention. He's saying we need prayer. And I, I am a person. I've shared this many times before. And I've told others this. And I mean, I've told many even co-working brothers this. And, and it, maybe it's not for everybody. I'm not saying it is. Because I know sometime when I've mentioned it, it seems like there's not much interest. But uh, for me, prayer lists are very helpful. Prayer lists are very helpful. I use them. I carry them with me all the time. I have prayer lists. And I use them. And, to, and, and if, they, if they don't help you, don't do it. I've heard one, one brother who I respect the uttermost. He says, that doesn't help me. It gets me in my mind. Okay, fine. It doesn't get me in my mind. No, I don't say that disparagingly. I mean it. This brother's really... I listen to what he says. But for me, it's a help. And I, I oftentimes will liken it to these... We know if you're going into an airplane, you're looking in the cockpit maybe before they close the door... It's always interesting to me. The pilot and the co-pilot, they're reading over these manuals. And it says, okay, flaps. And the guy says, yeah, check. Okay, uh, aviation, whatever. Okay, yeah, check. And I think to myself, these guys have done this a million times. What are they doing? Why do they have to read a manual? Anyway, it helps them to be sure. And to me, sometimes to go over these lists of people's names, and sometimes I just mention, but sometimes it's just, I just in time, I dwell on them, I pray, it's so sweet. And I personally, in my prayer time also, I, I like to use many of the short prayers I get in the trainings and conferences. I write them down, print them out. The confessions, the things that you'll hear the brothers speak, I just pray them. I pray them. I like to pray them. I get life. And it helps me. And, and so I would say prayer is so crucial and it just, we must, we must be, build ourselves up in our most holy faith praying. Praying with others but also praying to ourselves. And praying by ourselves. And uh, of course, you know, again, all these things are so basic and so fundamental but we have to check. What about our daily life? Are we praying daily? Do we pray in the morning? Do we, are we able to stop ourselves? And I would say we should stop ourselves in the afternoon. Sometimes we're like a truck without brakes. It's very difficult. You can do anything but pray. You can do anything but stop yourself. And I like that quote by Brother Lee. To pray is to rebel. Only good use of the word rebel is in this context. Never have Brother Lee ever talked anything good about rebellion. In fact, it's amazing. He even used that word, but he said it's to rebel against yourself. The self does not like to pray. We need to cultivate our prayer strengthening and all kinds of prayer and even sometimes we're praying together we're shouting we're short prayers we're whatever and sometimes we pray we need to learn to pray conversationally just talk to the Lord 
report, our complaints, all, there's many different ways to pray. You know, we, and I mentioned this to Saints in Memphis, with the Christian life and with the church life, Brother Lee would always say this, we are practicing the church life. We are practicing the church life. We are practicing our Christian life. We are practicing our service life. And I like that word practice because if you consider the highest professions, doctors, lawyers, people like this, they refer to it as practice. Rick practices medicine. And so you think, well, I don't want to go to a guy that's just practicing. I want to go to the one that's the real thing. (laughs) He's just practicing. (laughs) I don't want to practice on me. But it's an art. Saints, it's an art. The human body is very complex. All kind of dimensions and angles and all this stuff. This doctor is practicing. He's practicing medicine. And an attorney, the law is also very complex. The law is a picture of God. The law is an amazing thing when you get into the law. Lawyers are practicing the law. Saints, we need to develop a spirit. We are practicing our Christian life. We are practicing the church life. We are learning all the time, learning from the Word, learning from ministry, learning from the experience of others, and learning from our own experience. You check your own experience. How many times do we hear Brother Lee say this? I checked my experience. So many times we're checking. Of course, our experience always has to be balanced and governed by the rails of God's Word. Never would we justify anything outside the bounds of the Word, but still within the bounds of the Word, there's a lot of room for our experience and our learning. So we practice praying. We practice living a scheduled life. We, and I'd say if we, if we as a serving one do not have a scheduled living, it's, it's, it's not good. We need to have a solid morning time. We hear this all the time. Why do we hear it all the time? Because we need to hear it all the time. Because the devil fights against your morning time constantly. I was in El Salvador years ago. We had a conference down there. Actually, one of the first times I ever began to travel. Uh, Rick, I don't know if you were with us. In, okay. In 87, 88? Yeah. Okay. It was during the war. Still, the war was going on. Okay. <clears throat> the war was going on. And we were up on... Is that house kind of on that hill? That old house? Yeah. Okay. We were having this conference in this old house, and it was during the Civil War. Of course, in those, that, that Civil War was different than the one in Nicaragua. In Nicaragua, the communists were in control, and the Contras were fighting against the government under communist control. So we couldn't get into Nicaragua until they had that election. Remember, we went there. But in the, the Salvadorian situation, the government, as Eric was there, the government was... Uh, pro-America and the rebels were the communists so we were able to go in there so we were there 88 we were having a conference we hear this kind of a boom lights go out well the saints there isn't you know they didn't think twice just lit the candles you know it's it's, it's a daily life right (laughs) but we were a little you know taken back but anyway after it was over, I said, uh, now, tell me, how did the boom and the lights go together? What, what was the connection there? And uh, oh, the, the brother said, well, you know, well, the gorillas, when it starts getting dark, the gorillas, what they do is they go out and they blow up little transformers. And the reason they do it is because they're, go- they're going to do mischief. But the first mischief they do is cut the power off and put the people in the dark. 
then they can really do mischief. You understand? The first thing they do, blow the transformers, the lights go out, and then under the cover of darkness, they can do a lot more stuff. Saints, the reason we mention the morning time for all, all the time, all the time, is because the devil is always hitting that transformer. He's hitting our morning time. He wants to knock out the power of our life. He wants to knock out the ability for us to walk in the mingled spirit and to be filled with the spirit. And a lot of it has to do, as Brother Nee says in his classic work on early rising, a lot of it has to do with the first choice we make every day. Watchman Nee. Those messages, by the way, you know, Ron referred to them. Those messages on the message for new believers, I thought the first time I saw him, oh, he gave this probably when he was like early in his ministry. And then he moved on. These were actually given at, toward the end of his ministry to help the new believers. So the fact that Watchman Nee made such an emphasis on the need of the believers to have an early time with the Lord, and he even said it's the first and most important habit a person should develop as a Christian, is not a small thing. This is not his early ministry, and later he realized, no, 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 the most important thing is whatever, whatever. He said this, the first choice we make in the day is a big choice. So we need to begin. We need a scheduled life. We need a disciplined life. We need to read our Bible every day. We need to read the ministry every day. We need to have prayer times every day. Yes, of course we need to pray at all times, pray always, but that probably will not happen if you don't have certain posts in the ground. It's like, you know, when they build these highways, they put the post and then they pour the concrete. But if they don't have the post, then the concrete doesn't get poured well. We need post in our day. We need a post in the morning. We need a post, and we do have post with others, but you need some post by yourself too. Because this bird has two wings, a corporate and a private. Personal. We need them both. So the matter of prayer, it, it, and with prayer, with me, so much with me with prayer is a lot of confession. And it's, to me, it's a wonderful thing that we can confess. We can confess. What a privilege to confess. How can unbelievers live without the ability to confess? I don't know. No wonder they go crazy. How do you deal with your guilt? How do you deal with your failures? How do you deal with your impurities? How do you deal with your rotten motives and your evil thoughts? We can deal with them because we can just pour them out. We can put them on the, on the head of uh, that, that scapegoat and send him to Azazel. You know, the scapegoat. They confessed their sins over the head, when they were putting their hands on the head of the scapegoat then they send him to Azazel. We were in uh, the Ukraine on this gospel move to Russia <clears throat> and we had all these problems in, in the place we went which was in the Ukraine, Sumy, right on the Russian border. And uh, eventually we kind of reached a compromise with the city. And in part of the compromise we had to be a little kind of very academic in our meetings and uh, actually we weren't even allowed to pray and things like that but it was okay because we rented a, a, a restaurant after the seminars we just bring the people there but so in the first meetings we were very academic we gave all the history of the Bible and when it was written how many people you know all this it's interesting to me I, I, I enjoy that anyway but uh, in that uh, we were giving and brother Peter Welk helped me because he had done some of this so many of the expressions that have come into the Russian language, and we know the English language, from the Bible. And there, some are in Russian, actually, that we don't use that much in English. But scapegoat is one in English. He's a scapegoat. 
that you're making this guy a scapegoat. 99% of the people you talk to do not know that's from the Bible. My brother is a professor of law at LSU. And I was talking to him. I said, his name is Cheney. I said, Cheney, can you see it? The handwriting's on the wall. <laughs> and he said, you know, he knows the expression. He said something. And I said, by the way, do you know where that expression comes from? The handwriting. I see the handwriting on the wall. He said, no, I don't know. I said, come on. You're an educated man. You don't know where that comes from. You must read the Bible. <laughs> Your education is deficient. That's in Daniel. And one that you'll probably really surprise you is the skin of his teeth. Job, King James Version, not recovery version. In fact, when the King James editors revised a new King James, even though they knew it was not a good translation, it was so much in the English language they couldn't take it out. They had to even leave it in the New King James. Because it's, you know, barely, 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 the skin of your teeth. So many expressions. So we were given this kind of stuff. Anyway, well, how did you get on that? <laughs> what was it? Scapegoat. Anyway, anyway, praise the Lord that we pray, we can confess. And even one of the wonderful things about prayer reading... And when we, you know, I, I mention all the time to the uh, young saints, to me, and this is just me, but anyway, to me there are at least two big ways to pray read. <clears throat> and maybe there's something kind of in between. There's this end and there's this end. One is the one we're all together, we just pray read and kind of we're exercising and kind of a gymnastic, I call it gymnastic pray reading. It's more gymnastic. There's not, it's a little bit of prayer here, but mainly it's exercising, declaring, speaking, using our spirit. Chewing the word, okay? That's a gymnastic prayer reading. But, and I do that sometime alone because I like to exercise my spirit. And we need to exercise our spirit. It's not bad to pray read gymnastically alone. But on the other end of the spectrum, there is, again, my own utterance, what I call classic prayer reading. And classical prayer reading is what you have in that booklet that Brother Ray Graver put out. Lord, thou sayest classical prayer reading and that is when you read the scriptures and you're just mingling them with prayer just confessing and supplicating uh, and many times classical prayer reading is even better by yourself but it can be with a small group as well with a large group it usually doesn't work quite as well but saints we need to take the word by means of all prayer all kinds of prayer classic prayer reading gymnastic prayer reading take the word to exercise our spirit uh, anyway, then the brothers mentioned truth, and I would say this. We need, if we're serving ones, as Brother Ron mentioned, well, I think it's actually in the outline that we'll get into in the Chinese-speaking conference. We need the gradual accumulation of truth. The church is the pillar and base of the truth. This world is devoid of truth. My goodness, when you go out to other places, other countries, you see you know, all the things, you know, they're devoid of truth. But even in America, even in Christian countries, how much there is a lack of truth. We must be constituted with the truth. And as the outline says in the sixth, the last meeting of this Chinese-speaking conference, if we are constituted with truth, it becomes an ongoing and a continual kind of a supply to us, right? Is that the utterance, Bill? Something like that. But also, we are people of truth. And the, we can never minimize the, the role of the church as the pillar and base of the truth. We must, be, we must accumulate the truth, and the way to do anything is little by little and day by day. 
Zechariah, you know, do not despise the day of small things. We despise the day of small things all the time. All of us do. You think, I don't have I don't, five minutes of prayer. What is that? It's nothing. It's nothing. I don't have I don't have thirty minutes to pray, and five minutes is nothing. So what happens? The devil has tricked you to do nothing. Tricked to do nothing. Five minutes means a lot, and it's hard to stop because prayer is so important. In the same way, just the reading of our Bible, the reading, if we have a scheduled Bible reading, a scheduled ministry reading, don't despise it. It's an accumulation of truth. You go to these places like Carlsbad Cavern, you see these giant stalagmites, or stalactites. The tights come down and the mites go up. How are they there? They're there by tiny accumulation, drop by drop, day by day, year by year, century by century, millennium by millennium. So would we take this way? As serving ones, if we don't, we're going to be bankrupt. We're going to be bankrupt. And we'll have nothing to give anyone. So we must be people of truth. We must be people of prayer. And I just would say to all of us that are serving, and to myself as well, I know it's a battle. It's a battle for all of us. But do it, what is the word, impassionately. Impassionately. Even do it rotely if necessary. Do it routinely if necessary. I'm a jogger. I know this may surprise you because I'm a bit portly, but I am a jogger. I jog two miles uh, five days a week. And the amazing thing is now, I've been doing this for 30 years, the amazing thing is that my speed, of course, is diminished a bit. Sometimes fast walkers pass me. <laughs> and that's a little embarrassing. <laughs> I wave at them. <laughs> and I think they're embarrassed too, actually. But anyway, it's good. But I yet, after 30 years of jogging, never is there a day when, in a sense, I want to do it. I, re- I really don't want to do it. But I have to do it. I must do it. Actually, it helps me physically. Helps me psych- if, I, if I didn't jog, I'd be worse. And it helps me psychologically. Helps me emotionally. Helps me spiritually. I pray. I'm going so slow. It's, you don't have to. <laughs> you can pray easy. It's a wonderful thing. But anyway, saints, we need to learn to do things in this way. Don't just live by your emotions. I don't feel like reading the Bible. I don't feel like praying. Pray anyway. And that's where lists are not bad. Where lists are not bad. And read the Bible anyway. And sometimes with me, I don't know about you, but I have to read out loud to myself because sometimes I'll read a chapter and I do not know what I read. I do not know what I read. But if I'll read it out loud, I'll not only will it enter in my eyes, it enters in my ears and it helps me. This is why I say we're practicing. Practice the Christian life and practice the church life and check your experience and learn. You know, Brother Lee would talk about, in I think the experience of like, he talked about groping prayers. And he said, sometimes when we confess, we spend a longer time with the Lord, he says we're groping. And it's like a person is putting their hands in dirt and they're going down until they begin to feel moisture. Okay? Sometimes we spend some time with the Lord, we begin confessing. And I had an experience one time, I was in New Zealand, and Ray McNeed took some of us up to visit a mountain or something. And we were all kind of walking down. Ray, Rick, you with us. And we were walking down scattered, just a good distance between us. And as I was walking, I just began to pray very conversationally, to confess, to complain. 
In Psalms it says, pour out your complaints to God. You won't poison him. <laughs> you may poison somebody else, but you won't poison God. He can bear it. <laughs> That's where you put your complaints to. And it's not bad to complain. Because men, when I, I began to complain, I began to confess. And, you know, the good thing was my complaining was a kind of a spiritual vomiting. And I just began to feel better. <laughs> and even pretty soon, I began to repent of my complaining. I'm serious. I began to say, Lord, forgive me. That was, ah, oh, where am I? You just, we need to just develop the ability to talk to the Lord, to converse with the Lord. And, um, but anyway... So we must be people of prayer and people of truth. Okay, then one thing, uh, lastly, and that is I really appreciate this matter of shepherding. You know, we have the high peak, uh, the brotherly, I mean, the uh, new revival that brotherly shared with us. And the new, I just love this new revival the more you get into it. Because he said the new revival is based upon three pillars, one being the high peak, first one. We covered these in the conferences and we're still into shepherding somewhat. First peak, high, first pillar, high peak. And that is God became man to make man God. Certainly that's the high peak. That's the core of the Bible. That's the essence of the Bible. That's what the Bible is all about. That's, that's, that's the deal. That's the, that's the real stream of the whole thing. Okay, that's the high peak. But then you have, we have a living. And I think more and more we're realizing, yes, we need the high peak, but not just slogans, not just shouting, not just the fact that we have some knowledge. Look, the Eastern Orthodox have this knowledge. I mean, you know, if you read some Eastern Orthodox literature, I've read the uh, Orthodox Church by Timothy Ware. Yes, I mean, my goodness, he gets in, wow, amazing stuff. Where's the living? It's just, it's, just, it's just all empty rhetoric. But we need, yes, we need a high peak, but we need a God-man living. This, if we're really going to become God, if we're becoming God, how about our living? Are we living like God? Or are we living like the devil? So we need a God-man living. But the third thing is shepherding. And I like this shepherding because this it just it's so wonderful what is a god man living well certainly a god man living is our humility our kindness our patience our gentleness our holiness our, all these things you know that christ lives out of us certainly that's a god man living i don't minimize that one bit no we need a life we need a life that in and of itself is a light and a testimony of course that's only going to be as christ is reproduced in us but don't think that a God-man living is devoid of what the God-man did when he came to earth. Because if you look at what the God-man did when he came to earth, and that is all the time, he was shepherding people. He was caring for people. So if we have a living that's not involved with caring for others, shepherding the saints, shepherding the young ones, shepherding the weak ones, shepherding the lost ones, I question how much of a God-man living it is. Because that was the living of the first God-man. Yes, righteousness, holiness, purity, truth, everything, but also shepherding. So these points that the brothers brought up last night, I would just say, this is what, this is what we're doing while we're serving. We need to be praying while we're serving. We need to find times to be in the truth, to be constituted with the truth, to be people of truth. And this prayer life and this life of truth is our capital to have a life of shepherding, to care for others. Of course, we care for others by praying. We care for others by being filled with the truth, filled with the word, and filled with the capital that we have to pour out. You know, before I got saved, when I was in my atheist time, and I was, you know, like I said, I was a pretty 
rotten atheist because I remember on my desk I had a glass top desk and I was majoring in history at LSU I minored in philosophy I loved philosophy I loved it and I was reading this book this port, it's called The Portable Nietzsche and I would Nietzsche's an awful godless man who died of syphilis I think uh, and he talked about the Antichrist he was just really just, just very negative but anyway he was fascinated in a negative sense with Christ he was fascinated with Christ in a negative sense and in his writings in this book I found a little note card because I bought it I got it used and the person that had used the book before had written out a note card and in the note card it was a quotation from the book and it said this and I put it under the glass top of my desk because I subscribed to it and it said this there was only one Christian and he died on the cross this is Nietzsche that's his thought he had a little bit of an admiration for Christ. He thought, well, yeah, he was good. He, but the problem is he's the only one. All the other people just, whatever, they're hypocrites. They're not. I don't see any Christians around. Okay. Anyway, when I got saved, somewhat I realized, because I, I, I soon realized that Christ has come into me, I realized in a sense that's still true, except now he's in me. And he can live in me. And this one Christian died on the cross, but he also rose and is the spirit to come and indwell us. Now he wants to be reproduced in us. And this is a God-man life. And there has to be this God-man life if there's going to be the reality of the body of Christ. This is what we're going to get into this, this weekend. This is the reality that is in Jesus. I love this. I love this. This is, what, this is the essence of what, what it's all about, and that is Christ is being reproduced. God is, God became a man, he's making us God, and we're having a God-man living, and so much of that God-man living is a life of love for others. Because God is love. And this God is loving sinners, and he's loving weak ones, and he's loving backslidden ones, and he's loving young disinterested ones. But we don't have the capital in ourselves. But we need to be filled with his word, filled with the truth, people of prayer, and then our service can be somewhat effectual, relatively so. It will increase, of course, as any effect. But anyway, so I encourage all of us just to underline what the brothers shared last night. And I think that's more my qualification to speak about that rather than the things Ron spoke about. I'm too short myself in these matters. But we can pray... We can be people of truth and we can be burdened to shepherd to contact. And I like, Rick apparently said this last night, we contact God, we contact saints, we contact sinners. Wonderful to contact people. Look, just to give out a gospel track. You know, Ed Mark shared, he got a gospel track, right? That's how he got saved. Gospel track. Don't think it's a small thing to leave a gospel track in a laundromat. Don't think it's a small thing to leave a BFA card. It's not a small thing, and it developed. This is why we, you know, when we talked about it in the church in Oklahoma City, we, first we thought, well, let's tell the saints that they have to give it to somebody. I said, okay, let's don't start there. Let's just start with either give or put it out, because at least if you put it out, you have some gospel consciousness, some gospel awareness, and let's start with baby steps, because so many saints don't do anything toward the gospel now. Let's just do some baby steps, and. Anyway, we can ratchet it up later if we want to, but, but it's not a bad start. So this is 
what I would say. Okay, so what do we do? Share five minutes? Okay. Yeah, ten minutes, okay.